I love the line of that song. I asked Becky, I gave her like a list of four or five songs that I wanted her to sing, and she just kind of looked at me like, I'm not doing all that, Seth. So I'll pick, I'll pick one out of what you, what you do. And so she picked Cornerstone. Uh, just that verse, weak made strong in Savior's love. And I am standing in that right now. <laughs> um, anybody can ask my, my wife if I'm a gifted communicator. And she will give you a quick answer. I am not. Um, and so, I will rest in him strengthening me to communicate what needs to be communicated. And by his spirit, we'll be made strong together. Okay. This title of this message is The Uniqueness of the Cross. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is in John 14:6. No one comes to the Father except through me. So, this message has been in my heart for a long time. Um, in my daily walk, I keep hearing things in our culture that, as a Christian, it's just like, I want to deal with it. How do I deal with it? How do I, how do I see these things from the perspective of the Father? Um, I hear things like religions are basically the same, all of them. And at best, they're superficially different. From our perspective as Christians, it's far more accurate to say that all religions at best are superficially similar, but fundamentally different. Um, As Christians, we need this established in our hearts, that you can't go to Buddha, you can't go to Allah with, you know, the best of intents and get to heaven. As Christians, there is one way to heaven, and that is through Jesus Christ. So... In determining that, I just wanted to, I want to go through this as more of an apologetic than it is what you might consider a normal preach. Um, but I want to compare and contrast some of these worldviews to what we should be thinking as Christians to try to clarify a little bit of how we believe and why we believe. Is everybody on board with that? Yeah. Wonderful. Okay. We live in a culture... Um, and I wrote all this stuff down, so if you see me reading a lot, it's because I want to say it the way I want to say it. So I'm going to try to look at everybody the way that you should do that. It may not always present itself that way. So bear with me, please. We live in a culture where how a person feels determines who they are. It is the essence of what it means to be human. Um, I don't know if anybody's encountered this, but we're not allowed to question anybody's feelings anymore. How did that happen? When did feelings become the predominant voice of humanity? When did they establish us as humans? What establishes us as humans? Preachers coming up with things and they're saying, Jesus didn't come into this world to condemn the world. He didn't. Jesus said, I did not come into this world to condemn the world. Why? Because the world already stood condemned. It's already there. Yes, he didn't come. He came as Savior. But we need to remember that there is a real lost world out there, that there are real lost people. And as Christians, our number one goal is to display Christ's love to the lost and to each other. How do we go about this? I'm sorry. Okay, my point in teaching this is to offer the vast difference between the Christian God and all other gods to establish the power and strength of the cross, to make known and bring to the forefront the gospel and all that it entails. I don't want us to end up like Pontius Pilate as he stared into the face of Christ and said, what is truth? 
And he didn't wait for the answer. He just turned and walked away. The, the amazing line of scripture when it says that, that here's this man who has the opportunity standing in the face of truth and asking, what is it? And not even waiting for the response. He just turned and walked. How many of us do that? How many of us question truth on a daily basis and turn away from the source of truth that I've been hearing what he has to say? I don't want to sound critical. I don't want to bash all these other different religions. I don't think that's the Christian ideal. I don't think that's where we should be. We're here to preach truth, not anti-truth. Um, there's some forms of love that I'm not liking in our current culture. Love in our culture, I think, was established through Christianity, but as the time went on, that love got watered down. How does it get watered down? It gets taken away from Christ. Christ and love are together. You can't take those two apart. So, in dealing with love, we always have to establish that love in Christ. Love today is a form of tolerance. Tolerance or acceptance is the main form of love that we can give to someone else. Accept me for who I am, because that's just the way I'm made. And if you don't accept me, you're not accepting my humanity. And if you're not accepting my humanity, then basically you hate me. Who has who seen that in today's culture? Is that what Christ is asking us to proclaim to the world? Is that how we're supposed to love others around us? Acceptance of everyone's feelings as being what defines ultimate reality. You know, you walk around and, and just at work, for instance, you know, I hear people always saying, well, we're basically, everyone's basically good at heart. You know, down, deep down inside, everyone's good. Yeah. And, you know, I just sit there and I don't, I don't try to preach too much to people, but we were sitting at lunch at work one day and sometimes all of us guys go out to eat and we're sitting around the table and one of the guys is talking about one of his friends and this friend had gotten into a lot of trouble. He's just obviously living a dopey life. And at the end of his statement and dealing with his friend, he says, you know, but he's basically a good person. I'm like, oh, well, that's interesting. I said, can you do me a favor? Outside of Hitler and Stalin and a couple other key evil people in the world, tell me, who do you think of as a bad person? Just name one. And he thinks and he thinks and he looks off in the distance and he's like, uh, I don't know. And he looks at me and he's like, who do you think is a bad person? And I said, all of us. And he stared around the table and he's like, Jesus. You know? And I was like, exactly. <laughs> that's, that's where the world is, though. We're all basically good. And all we're trying to do is be good to each other. Is that Christianity? Is that where we're supposed to walk? I also believe there's a form of Christianity taking place without the gospel being firmly established. There's the left-wing Christian, I'd like to call them. They are love without the knowledge of Christ's love. I'm just going to love to love. No matter what it takes, I'm going to heap love on you. But if you're not establishing that love in Christ, in his truth, in the directives he gives us as the church, we can't do it properly on our own. A new command I give, said Jesus, love as I have loved. His new command wasn't set up on our love. 
It was set up on his love. We need to remember that. We always need to remember that. When Jesus said the law was fulfilled, and you can fulfill the law, love the Lord with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength, that's still a commandment. He came to fulfill all that. We can't love God with all our heart, all our mind, and all our strength. That's what brings us to the end of ourselves. That's the mirror that we place in front of us. It says, you can't do it. He fulfilled that, and we are set up and established in his love. Okay. There's also the right side. The law superseding Christ's love. A lot of Christians nowadays, I think, they're still trying... Again, I kind of went ahead of myself uh, talking about the law. But there's still... The new command that Christ gave us is giving way to the old commands as a way of pleasing the Father. When we are in Christ, we are pleasing to the Father. Simple as that. We're going to mess up, and He's there. We're going to sin, and He is there. But our righteousness is established in Christ. Nowhere else. We don't need to follow all the rules perfectly to make God pleased with us. He is pleased with us now. Okay. We do the cross a disservice in believing in this way. We think, we think we're helping God out, and really we're doing a disservice to the finished work of Christ. Before I begin talking about the gospel, I want to pre- present an overview of some of the competing religions and worldviews and show how they line up a lot of times to the far left of Christianity and the far right. I'm not here, again, to bash all these worldviews, and I'm hopefully not setting up straw men just to knock them down. I want to just establish some differences here, okay? Um, you know, every worldview is going to have a couple things that we need to take into account. Origin, meaning, morality, destiny. You know, where do we come from? Where are we going? Why are we here? All these things matter when it comes to a worldview. All religions basically believe in love and goodness. I think at the intent of everybody's heart, no one's ever going to say, I don't believe in love. They're all going to say it. And, and I presented that just as a basic worldview of what everyone else around us is believing. They do. They believe in love and goodness. But they only differ on matters of creation, sin, heaven, hell, God, and salvation. <laughs> There's a lot of differences there. <laughs> My question is, does any of the religions answer the four questions, the origin, meaning, morality, and, and destiny? Are they really creating a full worldview? Um, as I studied, and I just did a, a basic overview of them, it seems like they all grasp maybe one finger of truth. And at that time, they think they're grasping the whole hand of truth. And they're holding on to something. And so when, when people see a religion, they're like, well, look, they're doing some good things. Yeah, religions are doing some things right. I mean, all of them are, are grasping onto a finger of truth. But if you're grasping onto just that one little finger and forgetting the whole hand, you're still in the wrong place. Now, the Muslims call themselves the arm of justice. Now, justice is a good thing, right? I have no disagreement with justice. But we aren't here to establish God's justice as God's people. He established justice at the cross. So, they get into this point of justice and all of a sudden they're fighting for their God and everything and you can see where that leads. Um, How do they get to heaven? They balance the scales. Their good deeds have to outweigh their bad deeds. And they never know if they do. 
That's up to their God. And they'll know if they get to paradise or not. Buddhism is all about destiny. Their entire religious system is centered on entering into nirvana. They follow this eightfold path. What is the eightfold path? Do the right thing. Say the right thing. Think the right thing. And the list goes on. Guess what that is? It's following law. Hey, we're going to do more good than bad. And hopefully, we'll continue on. And uh, pantheism and Hinduism are the same way. Hinduism has over 330 million gods. Each of these gods reflects an answer to a specific question in life. How do they get to heaven? How do they, how do they proceed forward? Karma. What's karma? The sum of a person's actions that decides their fate and future existences. What is that? We'll do more good than bad. Do we see a pattern here? Do we see why Christianity can't fall into that pattern? Because this is, these are the basic teachings of the world. This is what everyone's followed since the beginning. This is what separates so much of Christianity from the rest of the world views. Now, those are the basic religions. These next two, I think, are a little more nuanced, and they've worked their way into our culture, and I think we battle these worldviews more than probably these other religions. Uh, I don't know how long this is going to take, by the way. Uh, Kate and I spent four hours working on this yesterday and uh, she's like that doesn't work or that's good and you know so thank you to my wife I forgot to say that from the beginning because without her this would be a lot more messy than it already is Um, but getting back to these next two the first one is naturalism or scientism and I think this is trying to establish our origins okay through science and data we can explain the origins of our beginnings. Now, what is science? Science is examining, poking, setting up a timer, watching, and then seeing how things respond. That's science. That's the basic scientific method, okay? How do you apply the scientific method to history? It's called historical science, and it's a whole different ball of wax, okay? As far as morality and destiny and meaning are concerned, naturalism has nothing to offer. In fact, here's a quote from a well-known new atheist named Richard Dawkins. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect. If there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. And you know what? Good on Richard. Because he's being honest here. He is reaching in to the end result of what he believes. And this is what it is. I find it interesting, in light of all this science, that some of the the greatest scientific breakthroughs of the last 50 years, um, the idea of the Big Bang Theory and the mapping of the human genome, have done more to actually serve the cause of the historical beliefs of the church than they have the scientific community. Um, when they came up with the Big Bang Theory, there was a lot of problems with the implications of what that meant. Before that, everyone said, this universe is eternal. It's always been and always will be. And then they're like, hmm. if we, when, we, when they came up with this Big Bang Theory, it was like, this is really lining up with the biblical narrative. And we, we don't really like that. But they had nowhere else to go. So, enter the Big Bang Theory. Um, 
the complexity of the human genome and the vast mathematical difficulties that it presented. And not only that, but the idea that there was almost what could be called a written language in our DNA. Um, how do you get written language? Does it just show up? I mean, how do you get a dictionary? It's not an explosion in a printing press and all of a sudden there's a dictionary. There's a mind behind it, right? There's no way, I mean, uh, scientists theorize about life on other planets and if they just had one word on one planet anywhere else, you know what they would say? There's intelligent life out there. There it is, one word. We have billions and billions of words built into our DNA. And scientists just are like, yeah, that's time plus matter plus chance, my friend. Is it? More problems with evolutionary thinking. Irreducible complexities. What is that? I like reading about, you know, creationism. Um, and this idea of, like, take, for instance, the eye. The eye in and of itself can't slowly form over time because it doesn't present anything good to the creature that it's, you know, through natural selection, it has to almost appear all at once, or at least very close to all at once. Uh, evolutionists like to call this, like, monster evolution, where it's like, boom, here I am. Um, the problem is, with this, nat with, I'm sorry, with this um, idea of irreducible complexity, the, the mathematical probabilities of that happening are vast. Um, I talked about the uh, explosion in the printing press. The, nat the mathematical probabilities of just an eye forming by evolutionary processes is the same mathematical um, probability as a tornado going through a junkyard and creating a working 747. <laughs> now, there's still a probability, right? The fine-tuning of the universe and its mathematical probabilities, the rate of expansion of the universe, the strength of gravity, the strength of electromagnetism, there's 30 different properties that have to take place for our universe even to have been in existence. And you think the probabilities of um, the eye forming are, are vast? If we put those 30 together in just the way that they're set up, I mean, you're dealing with numbers. They say, they theorize that those numbers, one to the power and all the zeros after that, there are more zeros in that number than there are particles in the known universe. It's a big number. Okay? So when Christians are battling with evolutionary thinking, we're battling with something different than we think. Is this the scientific method? When you boil down the core beliefs of evolution, when you examine what they're teaching, the end result is this. Billions and billions of years ago, and the numbers kind of change over time, reality appeared. Something came from nothing. From that point, billions of years later, our planet spawned life from nothing. Your great-great-great-grandfather is a rock. <laughs> I put that in there. They don't say that, but... Boil down the thought process behind it, okay? And you're getting somewhere. Now, the point of explaining all this is not necessarily to put down the naturalists. It's simply to state that their beliefs are as much faith as ours. It's a faith. It's a worldview. 
It's a system of believing. Both of us are looking at the evidence and establishing a worldview through the lens of what we believe reality to be. In the end, we are both working from faith. I was playing tennis with my friend Colin, and uh, he had brought along a college student to come play with us. And so we were hitting the ball around for a couple hours, and we took a break, and uh, this kid was apparently going to college. And so we were all talking about what he's going to be studying. He's like, yeah, I'm having a hard time deciding what I'm going to study. I'm like, oh, well, what are your, you know, what are your two main thoughts that you're battling? He's like, I don't know. It's somewhere between evolutionary biology and creative writing. And I said, well, you're in luck because it's the same thing. (laughs) So, anyway. The next one I want to talk about is postmodernism. And I think this is where our culture really battles the most. I think this is where the church maybe battles the most. Postmodernism seemed to spawn from belief in evolution. Our kids have been told over and over again that we're just the end result of time plus matter plus chance. How can any real value or worth result from blind, pitiless indifference? I mean, if you're the result of nothing... And then just time. What are your core beliefs? What sets you apart? What even makes you a human worth anything? How is a human more valuable than any other creature on earth? And so you see these people talking, you know, I believe that Christians should be the prime motivators and pushers of caring for our earth. That's a good thing. And when I hear Christians railing against that, I say, no, we're called to, be, to, to care for our earth. I think where we battle is you see people with such a twisted worldview, like the, the Princeton um, professor, and he says, I forget how he put it, a rat is a pig is a child. Essentially saying there's no difference in value between a pig or a rat or a human child. That's where that worldview goes, and it drifts quickly. I mean, it drifted quickly in, in, in Nazi Germany. I didn't write any of this down. But the point, as I always think about Nazi Germany, I'm like, how did they convince all those people? How did everybody just get on board with this? And it was through the teachings of naturalism that said, hey, we can evolve. And so if we take out the bad elements, this is all based on science, right? If we take out the bad elements of society... Weed them out, kill them all. We are actually helping the human race progress. You could turn that whole thing around and say that possibly these people thought they were doing the right thing. Do you see how quickly society's ideals, how quickly society's reactions can change? And how everyone can jump on board without even realizing it. It's scary. We have to know what our foundations are. Therefore, ultimate reality becomes whatever our our imaginations want it to be. If we don't have anything that sets us up and establishes us, it's whatever we want it to be. Postmodernism denies the reality of the four basic questions of our worldview. In looking at it from outside, we may find this the easiest belief system to oppose. But of all the belief systems, it's the one that's that's having the most powerful influence in our country today. And possibly in the church. 
The foundations of postmodernism, and this is their words, are opposition to traditional authority. Truth is relative. Facts are worthless. Morality is relative. This isn't a Christian looking at what they believe. This is them saying what they believe. And this is how they're putting it forward. Examples of this are just breakdown in cultural norms. And we see that happening everywhere. And we should be... We should be watching, and we should be praying, but we should also be established in the fact that we have a Savior, and that He has—he knows—he's known this from the beginning. He's known everything that's going to happen. None of it's taken him by surprise. Gender, marriage, values—what it means to be human. This is what this mindset breaks down. Truth is relative. Your truth's good for you, but I don't have the authority to tell you that it's, a, that it, that it's bad. I can't, I can't say it. I can't say, well, hey, your truth is bad or my truth is... Uh, no one can tell anybody anything anymore. The greatest injustice, injustice a person can impose on another person is to say, I have the truth. I was at a job site one time, and we were all starting to talk about religion and the guys are going back and forth about this religion and how, you know, they're, they're bashing Muslims because they're terrorizing people and they're bashing these other people. And they're just going on. I don't know about how you all talk about religion in your, your specific areas of work, but in the job site, it's usually anger. Um, and so someone brought up this idea of truth. Um, and how in the end nobody could know the truth, right? No one can know the truth. You see that postmodern just sleep, and this is this isn't construction workers who don't think about any of this stuff, but that postmodern thought just seeps right in. And someone brought up their idea of truth, and I said, "I know what the truth is." And you know, this guy looked at me like I was the most ignorant, arrogant person he'd ever seen. And I can see where he's coming from. It does sound arrogant. The problem with claiming to know the truth is that the truth is by definition exclusive. Let me say that again. The problem of claiming to know the truth is that the truth, by definition, is exclusive. Therefore, in claiming to know the truth, you're also making the claim that all other views are wrong. That's a hard pill to swallow for some people. This new, tr- this new truth is swiftly just the stream of culture. It's just going down this path to what I call feeling enlightenment, which at its core is humanism. It's just humanity trying to be God once again. It's just another form of that. We don't want to swim down that stream. It's been said only dead fish swim with the stream. Um, I think we need to remember that as Christians. (laughs) The holy mantras of our present society. Be the best person you can be. Love everyone. Judge no one. Be tolerant of all. Oops. My, crush, my question is, is tolerance Christian? Does tolerance mean agreeing with everyone? Does tolerance include celebrating all worldviews? Does tolerance leave room for truth? One of the most hostile things I can do in today's culture is to question someone's Feelings. In today's culture, it's a direct assault on someone's core humanity to suggest that there is absolute truth 
or to suggest that perhaps their feelings are not accurate. As a Christian, how do I feel about truth? How do I feel about morality? How do I feel about who's in charge? How do I feel about my fellow man? As a, Christ, as a Christian, does it actually matter how I feel? In dealing with postmodernism, I, I listen to a lot of Ravi Zacharias. Anybody here Ravi Zacharias fan? You might hear some, some little outworkings of what he teaches and what I said today. And he tells this story. You know, he, he's flying into this, this city in America. I can't remember which one it was. And he's taking a taxi cab to his destination. And the taxi cab driver gets into a conversation with him. He says, well, where are you going? And so Ravi's like, oh, I'm going to this university. Well, what do you do? Well, I teach on, you know, matters of truth and Christian thought and uh, dealing with postmodernism, all those kind of different things. And the, and the taxi driver's like, oh, wow, well, you know, there's actually the first postmodern building ever built right down the road from here. We can stop by and see it if you want. And so Ravi's like, well, that's, that'd be interesting. A postmodern building, what does that even mean? So the taxi cab driver starts describing it. He's like, you know, there's doors, and you open them up, and there's no room behind them. And there's stairs that lead nowhere, and there's light switches and rooms that turn on lights in a whole different area. You know, it's just, it's just all over the place. And Robbie's like, well, wow, that's, that's really neat. And then he had a question for the taxi driver. Did they do the same thing with the foundation? The foundations of this way of life, of this way of thinking... They're just hanging in midair. What's supporting the foundations of this thought? There's no support structure for them. In all honesty, what happens when your neighbor's truth or feelings are that he's supposed to live as a cannibal? Think about it. Feelings are good. Feelings are a gift given to us by God. As Christians, we don't deny feelings and just live this, you know, aesthetic, faith-based, you know, we have feelings. And he gave them to us. We accept them as a gift. But we must take care as a church not to let our feelings dictate truth. You know, I was talking with my son the other day. I asked him if I could say this, so, yeah. And it's not, it's not really anything bad. And he had gotten in trouble. And we were talking about feelings. And I had this thought about feelings, you know, and I was like, I told this story to Kate, and it didn't sound great, so maybe it'll sound better now. We'll see. <laughs> And I'm like, you know, feelings are good. God gave us feelings. I said, but they're a lot like food and the taste of food. And he's like, well, what does that mean? And I was like, well, God could have just allowed us to eat without the pleasure of how food tasted. I mean, he's given us multiple times different ways to enjoy food. And we should enjoy it. We should enjoy the flavor of food. But at its core, food is sustenance. That's what food is. It sustains us. But he gave us the taste to heighten it, to make it better, because that's what he does. He, he's, he's the maker of all things good. And feelings are the same way. They are the flavors of life. But if we let those fa- flavors supersede the fact that there is the sustenance behind it, then we're going to get lost. Now, I, that, I don't know if that translated... What do you think, Eve? Did that translate? He doesn't know. Okay. The point of this story is that feelings are good. They're a gift. But if they're placed in the wrong order or out of balance with ultimate truth, the end result is a life without foundations, a life without sustenance. 
What feeds your soul? The end result of the postmodern worldview is that you end up floating in midair, and you're just floating there eating whatever you want to eat until you're eventually cannibalized by your fellow man. Because that's what's going to happen. It's been said that when human beings stop believing in God, they believe in nothing. The truth is actually much worse. They end up believing in anything. What is our sustenance? A better question to ask is, what is our foundation? Jesus said, I am the bread of life. What does that mean? What does the gospel mean? How does it stand in contrast to these other worldviews? What makes it the truth that will set us free? Page nine. In starting to think about the gospel, we need to look at the foundation. Psalms 89.14 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Unfailing love and truth walk before you. The foundation of God's kingdom are righteousness and and justice. It needs to rest on that foundation. If it doesn't rest on that foundation, it's sitting on nothing. What does that mean to a fallen world? How is justice held up? We need to understand the light that the gospel sheds. That we all started as sinners in in need of a savior. That the world outside of the cross of Jesus Christ stands condemned. And that there's only one way. Now, I want to present the gospel here. And I think we present it sometimes in such light terms. And good, and it's nice, and it's pretty. But there is a backdrop to the gospel that we need to recognize as Christians. The gospel begins with a dark backdrop. There is sin. There's evil. There's injustice. No one is righteous. And death is the final result. This is where the gospel begins. Malcolm Muggeridge said, The depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality, but at the same time the most intellectually resisted fact. That's a lot of words. It basically means we're hopeless. And it's so easy to see. When we look around and we're like, everyone's basically good. All you got to do is look around just a little bit more and see. Look at yourself. How many times does your heart deceive you? How many times do you do the wrong thing? I mean, we need a Savior. And so, the Gospel doesn't, it doesn't start just in niceness. It starts in the fact that humanity is in need. In desperate need. It needs to be realized that humanity separated from its Creator because of sin is dead. Dead. This is where the, the Gospel actually begins. The gospel begins at the cross. <clears throat> the cross that was firmly planted into the cursed soil of our world. When the eternal God came to earth, fully God, fully man, as the one and only true sacrifice for the sin of all mankind. The eternal entered into our timeline at just the right moment. The shedding of his blood brings us back from the dead, back from corruption and condemnation into right standing with the Father. Jesus came for us to have right standing with the Father, to come back into right relationship with the Father. He loves us so much that all that was done for us to be with Him. The sole purpose of Christianity is to be with Him and for us to glorify the Father. But the only way for us to glorify Him is to be with Him. Hence the cross. His righteousness satisfied, his justice established, his holiness magnified, his truth and love on display. 
I would love to spend an hour talking about that because, and we should, we should as a church, we should talk about all that because it's really good. But I want to continue here. So hopefully you've got those precepts in your mind and figured out how that righteousness was satisfied, how that justice was established, because it was. Jesus did not come into this world to make bad people good. He came into this world to make dead people live. I said that the last time I preached. And it needs to be remembered. All that was sacrificed, all that was given, wasn't given to make us better people. We were dead. And as Christians now, we are alive in Christ. The gospel starts in eternity with God's plan of redemption. It draws back in time to all people, for all time, beginning life in Adam, leading into original sin. When Adam sinned, we were in him. As Tommy likes to point out in this, in this interesting thought, you know, take Tommy's grandmother, he tells us a story about my grandfather was in World War II. I was in my grandfather at that time. And guess what would have happened if Grandpa had died in the war? He wouldn't be there. The same is true with Adam. We believe in creation. We believe that God created Adam and created Eve and then we came from them. That is an important, vastly important part of the Christian thought process because without that, what did Christ come for? If original sin is not there, what was the purpose of the cross? You can't separate the two. It draws back to Adam leading into original sin. It leads through history to a man named Abraham birthing a nation through a promise. It carries over into that nation, born of a promise, rescued from slavery by grace, just like we, just like we had. It's a picture. It's a type. It's, it's, it's a shadow of what we received through Christ. It carries over into that nation that was rescued. It was given laws and precepts of a holy God, a, bl- a blueprint to live life on earth. Here's how you guys are going to do it through judges, kingdoms, and prophets, through death and destruction, through empires coming and empires going, leading all the way up to just the right time. I love the Bible. You know, you think the Bible's from eternity, and it enters our time, and it says, at just the right time. What does that even mean from the internal perspective? You know? It is interesting when you think of uh, eternity. I always think of it in the, in the, the vertical aspect. We're looking up to God. And I think of us as humans living on, on this, this plane of existence that's horizontal, like a timeline, and how that makes the cross, and how we can't look at the horizontal correctly without being established in that vertical, that eternal perspective. Okay? And the cross is there to remind us of that all the time. So, where are your crosses? They're good. <clears throat> where was I? The empire's just the right place, just the right time. When the God of all eternity was born of a virgin and came to earth to dwell among us. Think of the magnitude of this. The eternal placing himself in time. The God of all things coming to us. We don't reach out for God. That's not the Christian way. We can't reach out for God. He comes to us. And he comes to us in our moment of need. And he lived a perfect life. And think about the perfect life that Christ lived. Every thought. 
When Jesus talks about sin, you know, he'll call out the, the basic ones. But he always leads it back to what's in the heart, what's in the mind. If you even think wrong, you're in sin. Every single thought that Christ had on earth was perfect. There was not a thought out of line. Forget just living right. I mean, every thought. He loved the Lord with all his heart and mind and strength. That's what he did. This is why he had to come. Because the righteousness of God had to be established. That sin needed to be dealt with. That we needed a representative. Fully God, fully man. To take our place. To represent us. Justice needed to be satisfied. Again, the perfect sacrifice in him was no sin. He knew no sin. But he that knew no sin took sin upon himself, our sin. And he bore the wrath of God. He carried our burdens. This is the uniqueness of the cross. Where all of the worldviews say, do good, get good. Balance the scales. Reach out to whatever God you serve. And hopefully you do enough to satisfy the requirements. Our God says, you can't do it. But... I'll do it for you. He's the supreme giver. What does that mean to us? We have nothing to give. We don't have anything to offer as humans. Outside of Christ, we're dead. We have only to receive. The gospel is asking us to receive. Here's the free gift. Take it. Here's life. And not just good life on earth. Eternal life. Take it. And what does man say? That don't make sense to me. I don't like it. I'd, I'd, rather, be, I'd rather be an evolved being so that I can have autonomy. You know? I don't want a God telling me what to do. I can do it on my own. That's, that's kind of the world's reaction. The cross leads to the fruition of all things. The most important moment in all time, when the God of the universe was on a cross, receiving the full punishment for our sins, and he cried out, It is finished. That phrase is just... Those some good words. His death, burial, <coughs> and resurrection, the, that resurrection being our, desi- our divine receipt, that's letting us know. Like Paul said, without the resurrection, we're the most pitied of men. But guess what? He was raised from the dead. And if you want to study on that and figure out what that means and, and all the different viewpoints and, and first account witnesses and everything that we have behind that, study up on that because it's good stuff. It will strengthen your faith because we don't have a blind faith. We have a faith that's established. There is... And, do we need perfect evidence all the time? No. But we have evidence that's established. We have a book that has been critiqued more than any other book, exponentially more than any other book over the years, and always proven correct. The cross leads to the fruition of all things, and it is finished. His death, burial, and resurrection are divine receipt, the outpouring of the Father's love for us. What was finished? What was accomplished? I want to just wash over the congregation here 
to, well, if everyone wants to just turn to Ephesians 1. I'm not going to read it word for word, but I just want to tell us some of the things that this gospel, this cross, this finished work accomplished for us as Christians. So, we're just going to, we're just going to survey the field here. In love adopted as sons, in accordance with his pleasure and will. This was freely given to us. We have redemption through his blood. Our sins are forgiven. God's grace is lavished on us. We're chosen for the praise of his glory. We're marked with the seal of the Holy Spirit. We're given the spirit of wisdom and revelation. The eyes of our hearts are enlightened. We've gone from death to life. We've gone from condemnation to peace. We've gone from being objects of wrath to sonship. We're seated with Christ right now, in Christ, in the heavenly realms. Right now. While we're sitting here, and you're getting all that is, is, is mind-blowing, but it's, it's, it's a good study. The far, the far away have been brought near. We're strengthened with power through His Spirit. We're rooted and established in His love. And together with all the saints, the church, why we are here, to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. Remember, church, that we do this part together with all the saints. We don't do it on our own. We need each other to grasp the depths of Christ. And if you think you can do that in your living room alone, you're still a Christian, but you're not as good a Christian as you could be. You don't know his love as well as you could. Is that law, is that judgment? It, you, can, you can take it however you want. But know this. If you're not part of a body, and if you're not fellowshipping with the saints, you will not know his love as well as you could. Colossians 1.13 We were rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the son he loves. In our study group, Tommy brought this question forward and he's like, I want one more definition of the gospel. And it's kind of difficult to do. And those guys were kind of spitballing some thoughts about what we thought. And I think we were kind of right in some of them. We were, we maybe not have gotten Tommy's exact definition right, but we were darn close. But his, his, uh, his word was tied up in that scripture, Kingdom. We reside in this kingdom right now. Right now. We're residing in his kingdom, his eternal kingdom. Every moment we have the ability, through Jesus, to do the works that he has created for us to do since the beginning. This is living in his kingdom. This is where belief in the Son brings us. We're more than just sinners saved by grace. More than just struggling to make it through the day. We are in His kingdom. Let the effects of that finished work pour over you. What we just read in Ephesians, those are our reality. Getting back to feelings, like we talked about postmodernism. When you're a Christian, you need to let those feelings flow with the truth of the word, the truth of the gospel. Don't let those feelings tell you otherwise. The truth is here. 
The truth is that we are in his kingdom. That we are in Christ. That there is a finished work. As we struggle with how we feel and how we should act and react, let his finished work pour over you. Daily put before you the reality of residing in his kingdom. Begin your days meditating. Meditating on the free gift of his finished work. Start your days that way. Not because of law, but because we need our minds renewed. I mean, we just get so full of stuff. I get so full of stuff. I'm about to rest you. But I lose that reality quick. As we do this, our minds will be renewed. Our perspective will line up with the eternal perspective. We will see those around us in the world as more than just mere people. As more than just mere mortals. We'll see them as eternal creatures. C.S. Lewis says, You've never encountered a mere mortal in your life. Every person you have ever met is an eternal creature. Now, they're destined for an eternal destiny. One way or another, but they're eternal. How does that affect the people that we encounter? Jesus said, In this world, you will have trouble. That's a great, that's a great line. <laughs> but take heart. I have overcome the world. As we study his finished work, that we are now the righteousness of God in Christ. We can learn in spite of how we feel, in spite of the troubles and the hardships we face, in spite of the difficulties of just living day to day, to say as Paul said in Philippians uh, 4.11-13, that we can learn to be content whatever the circumstances. He said, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in, every, in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Let his word wash over you today. Let his finished work be established in your hearts and minds. And let us take heart because Jesus has overcome the world. Based on that, now, as Christ loved us, let us go and love one another. Amen?